Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hi. It's me tonight. And um, I thought since we've had a talk on metta and a talk on compassion, uh, that I talk about one of my favorite topics, joy. Are you ready? No, I'm not ready for joy. I'm in dukkha, just don't don't bug me here. They go hand in hand, just to know. Uh, You don't have to let go of your dukkha if you want to just be open to the talk. Um, And uh, want to uh, first look at uh, the Buddha's teachings and, and, uh, well, share a little bit about how I got interested in this topic particularly and have focused a lot on it um, in the last uh, several years. Uh, Wrote a book about it and teach a course on it. Um, But it's really, uh, what I want to talk about is seeing this path, uh, the path of practice and, and this path of Dharma as really a path of happiness. And sometimes we can um, lose, uh, lose sight of that in our, um, our courageously opening up to suffering. And we hear suffering used a lot in the teachings, in the, in the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's an end to suffering, and there's a path leading to the end of suffering. But with all of that focus on suffering and the end of suffering, um, you can forget that this is really about happiness. As I think Bhante uh, said the other, the other night, the Buddha was called the happy one. And he said, go for the highest happiness and all the others, true happinesses, uh, will also naturally uh, be experienced. <clears throat> In fact, just quote a bit from the Buddha. This is from Thomas Byram's translation of the Dhammapada, which is often a kind of poetic, flowery one. But these are, this is one translation of the Buddha's words. Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. And you probably have tasted the sweet joy of the way somewhere along the line. Why would you 
sign up for this very strange thing to do for six weeks or three months. Something's touched you. And, uh, and yet, it's easy to miss um, the fact that this is a path of happiness when we're, especially when we're right in the thick of things. I'll share with you a little bit about my own, my own journey. When I first heard the, the teachings uh, back in 1974, the summer of 74, uh, the first year at Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, and Joseph had just come back from from being in Asia for about seven years, and and there he was, and I didn't know what I was getting into, um, but when I heard it, and heard him talk, <clears throat> after the first 10 minutes, the first 10 minutes I was saying, well, so this is the great mindfulness teacher, because he didn't fit my image of, he didn't have long flowing hair, hair and robes, and uh, but I've been hearing good things about him. But he sounded like he was from New York. I'm from New York, and uh, just a couple of years older than me. But after about 10, 10 minutes, I said, wow, this guy knows something that I want to know. And because it wasn't so different, I said, wow, well, maybe, maybe I, can, I can learn too. And he was saying it's possible to not be run by your neurotic thoughts that had never occurred to me as a possibility before. <laughs> but I believed him and I said, I'm going for it. And I, I had what was uh, what's called a long honeymoon period where I really, I, I found what I was looking for and probably most of you know what I'm talking about when the Dharma hits you in such a powerful way. And uh, I would practically run down the streets telling everybody, you just have to be mindful. You just have to be mindful. You know, my friends kind of slunk away from me like, okay, give this guy some space. It took me a while to, to learn a, a softer cell. Um, but I had just this, this tremendous enthusiasm for practice. And I had this long honeymoon period where I did lots and lots of retreats and I, I was just in love with the Dharma, as perhaps you can relate to. At some point after a number of years, I became uh, very serious about my practice. Dead serious <laughs> about my practice. Emphasis on the dead. <laughs> and I lost my joy. Um, and I went through a period of, of really feeling, uh, misunderstanding some, some teachings and, um, and somehow trying to reconcile what I was going, feeling inside with um, what I understood to be the, the teachings. Um, and there was this uh, dissonance. Uh, I'll share with you maybe a little of what I'm talking of. A few teachings, profound teachings that can be misunderstood. Uh, I'll share a couple. One is the uh, concept or the, um, uh, the teaching on Samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A. This is the, 
This is one translation of uh, Samvega from uh, Tanasaro Bhikkhu. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. Wow. This is a a very important place to touch in practice, but it can leave, leave you with the idea, let's get out of here as fast as we can. And the operative term that that needs to be understood, realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. And when you start seeing there's another way to live life, that there's another um, route to true happiness, then you are not so uh, caught up in, in the hankering that most of us get caught up in. So that that was one teaching that conceptually I knew it, but there was something that, uh, or thought I understood it, but there is something that um, uh, that was hitting me in a different place. Here's another teaching on another very important understanding, nibbida, which, depending upon the translation that you uh, that you read, nibbida. Um, has been at times translated as utter disgust. Therefore, one should abide in utter disgust for the aggregates. This mind-body process. Or another translation, um, one should develop, one should, he should dwell engrossed in revulsion towards the aggregates. You think, my goodness, it's been taking me a long time to just even look in the mirror and, and not wince. <laughs> and they're saying, develop revulsion and utter disgust for the aggregates. And there's a beautiful essay by uh, Andy Olensky, a wonderful Buddhist scholar, um, who says an, the, another way to understand this word nibbida is um, one should become disenchanted with the aggregates. Disenchanted, that means not being enchanted with this mind-body process. Or another way to say it is uh, breaking the spell of enchantment. And so there's a possibility of, of letting go and not being so hooked. But you hear, utter disgust for the aggregates, and it's like, you know, whoa, okay, is it okay to actually appreciate this mind and body? Yes, it is. And uh, when, I, when I realized that um, somehow I had misunderstood and, and wrongly internalized some teachings, uh, I decided I wanted to look at where I had gotten wrong. 
And I also saw I wasn't the only one. And I wanted to read to you um, a passage from um, Ajahn Sumedho on joy. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of experience. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics, rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once one has true insight, then one enjoys and delights in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. So, I um, fortunately didn't turn my back on the teachings. I, I said, well, where, what does the Buddha really say about happiness and well-being and joy? And I found beautiful teachings that helped me put an, another um, way to hold the practice and, and slant on things. Um, which I want to share with you tonight and which turned into this whole um, uh, imp- approach that I, I, I feel is important to include in our practice. Mm-hmm. Besides uh, the Buddha being called the happy one, the Dalai Lama is such an embodiment, as, as has been brought up here before, uh, of joy. And he, started, he starts out his book, um, The Art of Happiness, beautiful book, with this one line. This is the first line in that book. The purpose of life is to be happy. The purpose of life is to be happy. Just let that land. The purpose of life is to be happy. It seems like such a, a, a contradictory statement from our learning to open up to suffering. But he's saying that when you discover true happiness, then you get in touch with all the beautiful qualities inside of you and that you're then able to share them with the world. There is no better thing that you, can, that you can do than to come to true wholeness and well-being by seeing what's in here and really getting beyond your filters and ideas and projections of, of what you think is in here. So when I, I took, a look at, took a look at the teachings, um, 
I, as I said, saw so many different beautiful teachings about these states of well-being. Joy is one of the four Brahma Viharas. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's one of the um, five uh, jhana factors. Um, There are many different kinds of well-being that are spoken of. There's piti, which is usually translated as as rapture or bliss, sometimes joy. There's uh, sukha, happiness. There's uh, pamoja, gladness. And then there are many other um, facets uh, translated as contentment or peace. So the Buddha talked a lot about uh, these different wholesome states. And when I, I looked at the teachings, there were three particular ones that struck me that are really the, the foundation of, of what I've come to call awakening joy. First is the teaching on um, wise effort, um, which has been alluded to here. There, there are four aspects of wise effort. Two having to do with unwholesome qualities and two having to do with wholesome qualities. Unwholesome qualities, akusala, are qualities of um, factors, mental factors, such as greed, hatred, delusion, jealousy, envy, um, and all the, the, the difficult emotions Um, fear and judgment fall into these unwholesome qualities. And they're called akusala, unwholesome, not because you're bad if you have them, but they they lead to suffering. They are suffering in the moment and they lead to more suffering. And the Buddha says, guard against unwholesome states arising, if you can, be in a very supportive environment so you're not, um, you're not losing, uh, you're not swept away by your surroundings as best you can. Guard against those states from arising. When they arise to learn how to deal with them, work with them, overcoming unwholesome states. And we're doing that a lot here when there's anger or fear or whatever arises, learning how to hold it without getting lost in it so it doesn't overwhelm you. So skillfully learning to overcome those unwholesome states. Then there are the two uh, aspects of wholesome states, kusala, states like uh, generosity, kindness, compassion, joy, uh, equanimity, all of those states that are Um, pleasant in the moment, uh, a state of well-being, and that deepen our well-being in general. And he says, it's good to cultivate these wholesome states, which we're doing here, developing mindfulness, which is a particularly unique wholesome state, Uh, metta, compassion, all of these states, courage, all the states that 
um, that we're cultivating as we open up to the whole show. He says, it's good to cultivate, consciously cultivate them. And when a wholesome state arises to maintain and in some translations, man, maintain and increase a wholesome state when it's arisen. He says, this is a good thing, to maintain and increase a wholesome state. Now you might wonder, hold on a moment. Isn't that attachment? But here's the tricky part. All the Akusala states are states of contraction, fear, greed, hatred, wanting. All the wholesome states are expansive, love, compassion, generosity. And so when a wholesome state is here, if you try to hold on to it or grasp at it or try to keep it here, it's just become an unwholesome state. So how to maintain and increase a wholesome state without grasping? Aha. Uh-huh. But you understand, first this is about cultivating and increasing wholesome states when they arise. And he says, leading to the second principle, when you're experiencing a wholesome state, it's good to, um, to be there for it. As I say, sometimes people uh, say, well, your, your whole course just uh, was for me distilled into three words. Don't miss it. <laughs> Don't miss it. And the Buddha, in one discourse, it's uh, Majima 99, he says, he gives the example of being in the middle of a generous act. And he says, if you're in the middle of a generous act, he recommends, he says, think to yourself, I'm being generous now. He says, this is a good thing. He's not saying, check it out. Everybody see how generous I am. No, but he's saying, just notice how good it feels for generosity to move through this form. How, how beautiful it feels. And in this discourse, he says, there is a gladness that one feels connected with the wholesome state. And the, 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 the lines are, that gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. So with the wholesome state, there's actually a feeling of uplift, of gladness that, um, that we experience. And he says, this, I understand, This is how you can maintain and increase a wholesome state by being present for that gladness. And maybe before I go on, just to 
uh, make this relevant to you. Just close your eyes for a moment, okay? And think of something that brings you joy. Some activity or some situation or where, where do you experience joy? And as you're recalling it, just get a sense how it feels inside when you're in that situation. And notice, notice how it feels right in your body and in your mind, in your heart. Okay, you can open your eyes. And uh, let's take a, a few comments, just a few out loud. What is your, how would you describe in a word your experience inside? Anybody? Yes. Stillness and a, and, a, and a movement of pressure outwards. Great. Rising. Thank you. Somebody else. Yes. Yeah, I felt that same pressure outwards and lightness, like both brightness and physical. Brightness and lightness. Yeah. Warm. And fullness. Yes. Buoyancy. Buoyancy. Yes. All the way in the back. Yeah. Say, speak up loud. Pleasant and expanding feeling in the belly. Yes. Maybe one more if there, that hasn't been said. Yes. Love. Love is there. Yes. It, this is not foreign to you. And you can hear and feel all of those descriptions. There's a, an opening, an expansiveness. Yes. So this is the second principle. When there is a wholesome state, to actually notice it, to be present for it. And this is one of the things that I, I hope to... Uh, that you, um, you take in from, from this evening, this is a good thing when you're feeling love or you're feeling peace or you're feeling joy or you're feeling um, um, compassion, whatever it is, that can be a very uh, beautiful and profound subject of mindfulness. This is maintaining and increasing wholesome states. Not to grasp, it's going to go, but while it's here, let it really register so you become more and more familiar with it. Now this is very different than the messages we get all the time about where happiness is found. And I'll pull out exhibit A to show you this. Uh, you might not be able to see it, maybe you will. This is a, an ad called The Gold Shivers. Beautiful woman, 
draped in gold, very happy. Here's the ad, I'll read it to you. It's two pages. The gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth, every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. (laughs) Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. Here's the, you can watch her while I. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye, to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. (laughs) Among life's pleasures count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. It's brilliant, isn't it? You might not even care for jewelry, but you look at that and say, I'd like some of that too. (laughs) Or you might say, you can't fool me. I am a critical thinker. I'm a Buddhist meditator. I know wise discernment. That's just madmen doing their thing. The thing is, it works. That's the sad part. It was mentioned the other night. All the ways, the images, uh, the, the, the men that need to be big or the, the, the women who are um, beautiful already and, and, and even the supermodels don't think that they're thin enough because those messages get in. Again and again, they start to um, carve neural pathways in our brain that... Um, that affect us. So when you went inside and said, what brought you joy? Did anyone say their jewelry? (laughs) Probably not. If you did, speak to me later. I want to maybe set you right. Uh, How many people said uh, or thought, oh, playing with my dog or cat or animal? A few. How many people said, uh, oh, being out in nature? Yeah. Uh, anybody who, uh, how many people thought of being with friends or, or children or grandchildren? Yeah, those are the ones that usually come up. And uh, dancing or, or singing or create creativity. Anybody have that? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody said their necklace, right? <laughs> so that, that's, that's the thing to really see where happiness lies, okay? So, understanding those wholesome states, noticing the gladness when you're in the middle of it and experiencing it. And then the third principle, which has been mentioned here before, I think Sally mentioned it a couple of times, a a very simple and profound teaching from uh, Majima 19, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. That's how it works. And so if you frequently think and ponder upon um, whatever your core beliefs are, oh, I'm really not good, I'm not enough, or 
people around are going to disappoint me or humanity is going down the tubes. You can have evidence to support any one of those beliefs or hypotheses, but that's, if that's the lens that you look through, you're missing out on the full picture. If you frequently think and ponder upon, there's a lot of goodness in here. People really want to feel safe and happy and love and be loved. Or it's amazing to be alive, how amazing it is. If you frequently think and ponder upon that, then you open to that reality as well. There's a a line I love by Albert Einstein. He says, perhaps the most important question a human being can ask is, is the universe friendly or not? Because if you think it's not friendly, and certainly you want to, as, as it said, tie your, uh, trust in Allah and tie your camel to the post. You don't want to be naive about it, about things. But if you see that there's a goodness to life, you'll more be able to see it, to, to find it. We are... Uh, we have what's called a confirmation bias in our brain and, and modern neuroscience knows this, knows this, that what you believe your brain will confirm and pick out and you'll miss out on all the things that don't conform to your beliefs, as I just was pointing to. We also have in our brain this almond-shaped cluster of neurons called the amygdala that scans the horizon for what can go wrong, for danger. And it's a good thing that we have it. It's a, it's a self-preservation mechanism. But we can have very overactive amygdalas, particularly when we're stressed. The amygdala is firing much more strongly than when you're at ease. And maybe you've seen, maybe that's one of the things that you might have noticed here. Oh, there's so much more space. I don't get quite as spun out. And you can still get spun out, of course, but not lost completely. Maybe every moment, every now and then, there's a moment of mindfulness that says, oh, wow, I was really lost there. You know, But when we're in a stressful ongoing situation in, in our lives, which is most of us most of the time, just living daily life, uh, the amygdala is firing and it's hard. It takes practice to let the beautiful moments really land. You know, so there you are you know, at a gorgeous sunset. Wow, this is beautiful. Uh, what's, when are we gonna go for dinner? You know, to really take it in and it is, is a, an art in itself. And maybe many of you know Rick Hansen, who's a, a, a good friend and neuroscience expert, or I think Sally mentioned him. And uh, his formula for this, really letting in, taking in the good, as he calls it, is in daily life, when you're experiencing a wholesome state, if you take 15 seconds to really take it in 
and you do that six times in a day, I know that's 90 seconds of well-being if you can handle it, you know, and you do that over a two-week period, you will notice a shift in your level of well-being because you're starting to uh, deepen those neural pathways and you're also more on the lookout to notice the good. Now, look at where we are. We've got six weeks or three months to cultivate wholesome states and to really be present for them. And by being present for them, I don't just mean knowing that you're feeling good. Because you can say, you know, yeah, feeling good, pretty good right now. Okay, now what else should I pay attention to? But to actually feel what it's like to feel good. Not just know it here, but to feel it and let your awareness connect in a, in a bodily way, in a visceral way, to let it anchor. As maybe you've touched on some beautiful, profound insight, don't say, oh well, that was yesterday, I better let go of it. You've been touched in, a, in some way and it, it opens you up in your body. That's, that is what, what's sometimes referred to as a trigger for insight. Just in that moment, uh, I can give you an example from my own experience. Uh, in 1979, I was in that dining room stirring a cup of Cafix, a very mundane experience. But as I was looking in that cup, I understood impermanence in a way that I'd never had before. From galaxies to subatoms, it, I, I can only just say, it touched me deeply and, and, and shifted something in me. And all I have to do, as right now, as I'm talking about it, is just think about stirring that cup and it's there. So, when you're in the middle of, a, of a, a deep understanding, I think it's skillful to really let it register, particularly in your body, not just, oh yeah, that really happened. And if you start playing it from the 87th angle, yeah, that really did happen. That's a bit much, but just feel the, the impact of that in your body and feel that wholesome insight. <clears throat> You don't have to go looking far for joy. It's an innate quality. It's who we are. We came into this world with joy. And uh, I'll give you another exhibit, exhibit B on this. Um, we come in this world and if we're fed and diapered and receive a little bit of love, what do, what do babies do? They squeal with delight. That's why it's so great being around babies. They somehow remind us somewhere in, in us, oh yeah, there's that too. And uh, here's a picture of uh, Chloe Thomas who, from Melbourne, Australia, who um, 
she was born uh, eight weeks premature. So this picture was not yet uh, when she came to full term nine months after conception. But I want you to uh, perhaps help her, uh, let her help you remember who you really are. Do you remember? You might say, not me. Yeah, <laughs> you too, you too. Did you smile? Did you giggle? Did you laugh? Did you play? And certainly lots of things can happen that get in the way of that. But this is who you really are. And, um, and you might say, well, that was a long time ago. But actually, um, again, Rick Hansen points out, if you put an adult in an fMRI machine, and that adult is um, free of physical pain and free of uh, stress and emotional pain, what they uh, usually exhibit, they are conscious, calm, creative, caring, and content. That's our true nature. And just like, as we said before, when you're taking refuge in the Buddha, you're taking refuge in all of those innate qualities that are who you are. The shining through of the divine, I think I mentioned it last time, Ajahn Sumedho. <clears throat> but this takes practice. It takes practice to get in touch with all of that goodness. And there are lots of things that get in the way. Or you might say, well, I'm, um, I'm not a, a bubbly, joyful person. I just wanna address that. What I'm calling joy, I'm pointing to all the different flavors of well-being as the Buddha spoke of. In fact, he said, this might be useful for you to know, there's rapture, and bliss, and those are, it's very pleasant, very pleasant uh, state, but it's coarser than happiness, which is just a little bit more refined, and contentment even more refined, and peace even more refined. And it's against the grain of what we're usually, we usually think more intensity, pour it on, that's better. But in the Buddha's way of thinking of things, the more sustainable and refined states are less intense and coarse. So, you know, don't worry about it if you've got joy and bliss, you know, be with it. But if you're saying, well, I just have happiness or I'm just content, the Buddha says, yeah, that's pretty good. Don't miss it. Peace, really be here for it. Stillness, fall in love with stillness. So you don't have to go for mm, skipping through fields of daisies and doing cartwheels. Just go for ease and contentment. And if this moment is okay, some people say, Joy, give me a break. I'll take not being miserable. Okay. <laughs> If that's you, then notice all the moments that you're not miserable. They're okay, right? Oh, this is this moment, it's okay. Okay is okay. 
Okay means this moment is, is fine. You don't need to add anything or take anything away. So don't miss that and don't need to go for a gusher, as I say, don't need to go for intensity. All the states of well-being. Another thing that sometimes gets in the way, how we do, is, um, is letting ourselves feel well-being, especially when we're we can be so tuned into the suffering and the sorrow in this world. Uh, and it's a very uh, understandable um, thought. Can I really let myself feel joy and happiness when there's so much suffering and so much sorrow? And um, I think not only is it okay, but uh, I think it's important. Um, and I'll, I'll share with you a, um, a beautiful passage I love from um, Howard Zinn, who as, if you're not familiar with him, he's a, a, a very, uh, was a very deeply respected um, historian who passed away a few years ago. He's John Kabat-Zinn's father-in-law uh, but he was famous before John Kabat-Zinn, and he he wrote uh, the People's History of the United States, the unwhitewashed history, and this is from an essay of his called "The Optimism of Uncertainty." He says, "An optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time." To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. So if you think about it, your own well-being and happiness, there's a fullness that comes from that. You're not looking and seeing, am I good enough? There's a sense of ease and your goodness overflows and the compassionate heart wants to express that goodness. You're much more motivated. You have much more energy. You're not so uh, preoccupied with yourself. So I, I see it as a real, uh, a real gift and benefit to everyone. Okay, so with these three principles, cultivating and increasing wholesome states, noticing the gladness that is experienced along with them, and training your mind and heart 
so that uh, you frequently think and ponder upon and include um, those wholesome states of well-being. Um, what I then have found helpful to do is to consciously take some wholesome states from the Buddhist teachings, cultivate them, and over time, if you are uh, continually inclining your mind and practicing cultivating that those wholesome states and really being present for them, you start to uh, incline your mind in that direction and it becomes more your default setting. And as I, I said, you know, when I first got into this practice, I was not a very happy camper. I had a lot of suffering inside of me and didn't like myself well at all. But I am here to say that it works, especially if you are consciously including well-being as a, a part of your practice. Now, I want to just mm, um, be uh, open up the field a bit and and say that um, from what I've seen, uh, happy people are not happy all the time. If somebody says, yes, I'm happy all the time, then they're living in denial and probably have locked jaw. Yes, I'm happy. No, truly happy people open up and can be here with the difficult, the first noble truth. There is dukkha. And the Buddha said, if you understand and can, can learn to work with that dukkha, then you, you not only uh, open to suffering, but to the end of suffering. So being with all the, the pain and the sorrow is, uh, is one of these 10 steps, a crucial step in, in those, the 10 that I picked. Knowing how to embrace the difficult is a direct pathway to joy. <clears throat> but along with that, there are all of these other beautiful states that one can cultivate, that you are cultivating. And uh, maybe just in the time I have left now, I had a feeling this might be a two-part uh, talk, so um, there'll be more coming if you can uh, handle it, handle too much joy. Okay, oh, oh, I don't know. Um, but just to, just to open up to um, a little bit uh, on some of these states. So I picked 10 states that you're quite familiar with. Um, the first one, the key to the whole development is intention. As the Buddha said, uh, intention by intending is karma through body, speech, and mind. Our intentions steer us in a certain way, or the, the wonderful Tibetan teaching, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. And as we were talking about this morning, Annie was, was sharing about intention. Motivation and intention are, are very closely related in the sense particularly of aspiration. 
you are drawn to be here because there was something that touched you and you, in your own way, said what I said, I'm going for it. That starts the intention. But also, particularly in, in this, mm, mm, uh, this system or this way of looking at things, having the intention to put happiness in the center of your life is a very powerful one that sometimes doesn't come so easily to people. Oh, yes, I want to wake up. I want to be as conscious as possible, but can I really let myself be happy? Whether it's because of uh, the suffering in the world or you're just not used to it. But putting happiness in the center of your life, this is what the Buddha was talking about. Go, go for real happiness. And making that decision is the key to the whole process. Here's, a, here's one uh, story on somebody who just decided and the effect that it had. This is from uh, Martin Seligman, the founder of Positive Psychology, um, which was a radical shift making psychology the, uh, instead of going for pathology, going for well-being. And this is how the positive psychology movement started. He, he write, writes about this in his book, Authentic Happiness. The notion of a positive psychology movement began at a moment in time, a few months after I'd been elected president of the American Psychological Association. It took place in my garden while I was weeding with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki. I have to confess that even though I write books about children, I'm really not all that good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm actually trying to get the weeding done. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds in the air and dancing around. <laughs> I yelled at her. She walked away, and after a while, she came back and said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. <laughs> Yes, Nikki, I said. Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday, from the time I was three to the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. When I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> and if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. <laughs> that was an epiphany for me. In terms of my own life, Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I'd spent 50 years enduring mostly wet weather in my soul, and the last 10 as a walking nimbus cloud in a household full of radiant sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to being grumpy, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change. And that was the start of the positive psychology movement. How about for you? Dare you put true happiness and well-being in the center of your life? Just, I invite you for a moment to go inside. You're doing this practice so sincerely. It leads to well-being. What if you just said, I'm going for it. I'm going for true happiness 
I really want to be happy. And just imagine that all this work that you're doing will lead you to greater and greater happiness and well-being. Imagine if you more and more are there for the, the goodness in your life and the goodness inside and the goodness around you. And you more and more included that in your practice too. Imagine after six weeks or three months or two years or five years, what that might look like inside. How it would, would be for all your friends and loved ones. And if this feels at all like a worthwhile endeavor, see if you can get in touch with the intention, the decision to do your part to bring that about, which is different than wishing or hoping, just deciding to do your part and let life support you. That is the key decision in your life. No timetable, no report card. You're just inclining your mind to go for true well-being. Okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like. This is wise intention after wise understanding, seeing where happiness lies, wise intention is this kind of, I'm going for it. But really be bold enough to include happiness and well-being in there. And whether or not you realize it, you know, you want to be happy. Anybody here that doesn't want to be happy? And you might be keeping your hand down but feel like saying, I really like being grumpy. That's just your way of being happy. <laughs> Whatever turns you on. But everything you do, and check it out, you do because you think, probably, or not even think, you sense, this will make me feel a little bit better, or this will make me feel a little less bad. So there's something in you that is rooting for your happiness all the time. So. Just be bold enough to say, yeah, I'm going to go for it. And once you do, then everything is held in that, in that decision. What in, uh, in one of the teachings called clear comprehension of purpose. Where you are clear where you want to, where you're heading and what you what really moves you in your life. <clears throat> so from there, the wholesome states naturally will uh, be unfolding if you see that this is a good thing to develop. Open up to all the dukkha. Don't be afraid of it because that is a key. You don't need to turn away from anything, but just including this in your practice. And, 
maybe next time I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, next time I'll share a bit more of these wholesome states for you. But maybe I'll just close now with uh, a favorite passage from um, Shantideva in, in uh, Bodhisattva's guide about this. Just amazingly good karma that we have to be practicing here together. Go for it. As a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death. The treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. The tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life. The bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life. The cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated. The sun that dispels darkness. The butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So let's sit for a moment. as a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. Enjoy your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.